Chapter 15 of The Browns at Mount Hermon by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Mr. Brown's Plans. Meantime, on the assembly grounds, the evening was being eagerly discussed by those who had worked hard for it. They gathered about Kendall Browning after their other guests had departed, profuse and hearty in their thanks for the help he had rendered. A little later, Mr. Brown walked down the hill with them toward Farmer Brown's spring wagon, talking eagerly. "'I told you, brother, that the Lord was in it. You have done good work for him tonight. You met Miss Upton, did you not, the tall girl who served coffee? Her eyes shone with gratitude whenever she looked your way. She has a brother who keeps her in a state of anxiety a good deal of the time. She had made her eyes red with weeping over her fears for this evening when I first heard of the plans. Do you know, my friend, that you captured that brother? He was the one who sang with you in the duet, and you congratulated him on his voice.' The fact is you got hold of every one of those boys and could lead them now in any direction that you chose. Do you remember Will Holden? He is a good fellow, bright and keen, and the victim of his fondness for fun. I was especially interested to see the way in which he watched you tonight. Will has ambitions, but his way is hedged, and it may be that he will not be able to go to college. He has hours of being sore over it and sensitive about his work. He fancies that college boys look down upon him, and he has met with one or two who did what they could to foster that impression but you knew just how to meet them all, without patronage or any appearance of superiority. You helped some of them to get away from an overweening self-consciousness that takes them captive on occasion, and have a good time together as comrades. It is a great gift that you have, my friend, that ability to win the boys to follow your lead. I know ministers who would give all they possess if they could thereby secure such an influence over boys as you showed tonight. And then, glancing back to see who was within possible hearing, he linked his arm in Browning's and let his voice drop into a confidential tone. It wasn't the boys alone over whom some of us were glad this evening. Do you recall the young lady who sang soprano with you in that first quartet? You must have noticed her voice. It has possibilities of a high order. She is Miss Aileen Roberts, daughter of a strong-souled, large-hearted Christian woman who keeps a boarding-house on these grounds and made all the chicken pie we ate tonight. She is very anxious about her pretty daughter, her one treasure. The girl is not interested in the meetings here, nor in anything religious, I fancy. Has not been. I think she looks upon religion as a matter chiefly for old people and sick people. At least she associates it with ill health and declining years and long faces. It was especially good for her to meet a young college athlete and leader among his set who stood for it boldly. I could feel the impression you were making, and so could her good mother. "'God bless him,' she said as she shook hands with me and followed you with her eyes, her face shining. "'God bless him. He has given my Eileen a new idea of religion this night. He's so young, you know, and so full of fun, and yet he's a preacher.' So you see, my friend, the hopes we are building on you, and the opportunity you have. By the way, we have a little plan for tomorrow morning that interests us very much, and of which we hope you will approve. The boys are anxious to hear you preach. I think each one has come to me separately to ask if it would be feasible to walk over to the little chapel for that purpose, and Miss Brown and I agreed that we should like of all things to join them. It is just a pleasant walk, you know, along the trail. I am not sure that you realize as I do what this may be for the boys. Some of them are just in the mood to be reached by the right person and we are praying and believing that you are that person." For the third time during this interview Kendall Browning opened his mouth to interrupt, to protest, to explain, but Mr. Brown had not noticed. He knew that his time was short and made haste with what he wanted to say. So, if the weather should be pleasant you may count on us as an addition to your little congregation tomorrow, and you may know in the meantime that a few of us are carrying your words before they are spoken on the wings of faith and prayer. "'Mr. Brown!' rang out a voice from the hills above them. "'Are you coming? We are ready to take the trail.' "'Aye, sir,' he said, making a trumpet of his hand. "'Coming this minute. Good night, my dear friend, and God bless you.' He held Browning's hand in hearty grasp for a second, and then strode away. 
Kendall Browning looked after him for a dazed moment, unable to decide what to do, then came to his senses. "'Oh, I say!' he called out. "'Hold on just a minute. Come back, please, for a moment. I must not detain you, but I simply must explain. I am not—' But he stopped, realizing that he was talking to trees and moonlight. The wind was against him, and his companion had run down a trail, jumped a ravine, and was springing with long leaps up the wooded path on the other side. It was of no use to try to explain to him. And here, within plain view, were Farmer Brown and Dolly waiting for him. The little girl was already seated in the wagon. "'I've been watching you and him visiting along,' the farmer said genially. "'I guess it's a good thing they called him, because we ought to be getting home right smart now, or it will be Sunday morning before you know it. Well, sir, we've had a great time tonight, haven't we?' I reckon I was about right when I said you could preach. Do you know I've made up my mind that Mr. Sutton can't hold a candle to you? Mr. Brown come and thanked me before he went along with you for bringing you over tonight. He said only the Lord knew what you might have accomplished by this evening's work. He is a great fellow, that Mr. Brown is. If we had a few more like him, we wouldn't have to pray any more for the millennium to come. It would be here. You like him, don't you? I don't know how a body could help it. And he took to you the first minute he saw you. My, but you can sing, can't you? Look here, you're pretty well tuckered out, ain't you? And no wonder you've had a busy evening of it. I'm going to keep my tongue still now and let you rest. Rest. He was grateful for the silence, but it seemed to him that he could never rest again. What had he done? He, Kendall Browning, grandson of the Reverend John Calvin Kendall of sacred memory, descending to the level of a trickster and a hypocrite. He was deceiving some of the choicest people he had ever met in his life, and he was preparing to conduct a service of solemn mockery in the Church of God. For the remainder of the drive comparative quiet reigned. The good farmer several times forgot his vow of silence, and began with, "'Wasn't that story Mr. Brown told?' or some kindred reminiscence of the evening, but midway in the sentence invariably checked himself with a sibilant shh, whereat his guest laughed and tried to politely urge its continuance, but for himself he found it impossible to get away from his own scathing self-condemnation. This mood continued after he had said good-night to the farmer and his daughter and had hidden himself in his room. Indeed, his surroundings seemed to intensify his feelings. The very hominess of the flower-scented chamber, prepared so carefully for the comfort of the occupant, seemed to emphasize the fact that he had been compelled to play the hypocrite in order to enjoy it. He sank into the cushiony depths of the wide-armed chair with something very like a groan, and tried to bring some order out of the chaos of his thoughts, and determine what he must do. But certain features of the remarkable evening through which he had just lived persisted in coming to the front. He to be congratulated because of his influence over boys. He, Kendall Browning, just expelled from college because boys would follow his lead. How had it all happened? Why had it happened? Why should he have been left to get himself into such a mess? It was this infernal spirit of fun that had taken possession of him. Talk about his leading people. He was being led himself. He was not in the least his own master. Whatever diabolical spirit of the air attended upon people given over to fun evidently had him in charge, bound hand and foot. It was new business to discover himself a slave. The young man's face burned red under the smart of it, he who had gloried in liberty and boasted of it and waxed eloquent over it in debate. But he must stop thinking of all this and hold his mind to the contrivance of a way out of this awful situation. Why, it was almost midnight, and tomorrow morning he was expected to stand in a pulpit and preach a sermon. The preposterousness of the idea presented itself to him fully for the first time. Driving home from the station that afternoon he had thought of the affair with almost complacency. There was a certain paper of his which had been prepared the year before for the Sunday evening annual meeting of the Young People's League connected with his home church. He had always remembered pleasantly the happy look on his mother's face as she listened to it being read by her son to a large congregation. 
It had been received with enthusiasm, and he had been urged to repeat it before the union meeting made up of all the young people's societies in town. He remembered that Dr. Carter, who had the reputation of being the best preacher in the little city, spoke very congratulatory words to him at the close, and added, "'You ought to be a preacher, my boy. That is evidently the field of usefulness for which you were designed.' He had kept the paper, at first because his mother had liked it so much, and afterwards because he had made notes on the reverse sides of the sheets, which were useful in classwork. By what he had called in the afternoon a streak of good fortune, those papers had been used during his last college recitation and thrust into his grip with other things that were lying around during that last angry packing. It was the recollection of this which had made him decide to avail himself of the farmer's hospitality for over Sunday. Why shouldn't he read it again to that handful of people who could not walk to the assembly grounds? It's got a lot of religion in it, he had told himself complacently, and a whole raft of Bible verses. I'll sail in and come out on top of the heap. Sutton will be nowhere. But all that had been in the afternoon. Now he thought of that thing, as he contemptuously named the eloquent paper, with a loathing which had in it also a tinge of indignation. It seemed in some way to be responsible for the scrape in which he found himself. It must have been noticed before this that Kendall Browning was given to blaming every person or thing but the right one for his troubles. He kicked the neat footstool on which Sutton was wont to rest his slippered feet quite out of its place, as he told it angrily that at any rate he could not read that stuff to those nice jolly fellows who were coming out to hear him, and that Mr. Brown wanted him to influence, and there was no use in talking about it. There was another person before whom he knew he could not read that stuff. Did he recall the young lady who sang soprano? Mr. Brown had asked, and he had gone on to particularize so that the stranger could distinguish her from the others. It wasn't in the least necessary. Kendall Browning remembered her as he remembered no other girl whose soft, plump hand had rested for a while on his coat-sleeve. They had walked together about that enchanted ground after the quartet had done its duty. He could feel at that moment the touch of her hand and the thrill that it gave him. Why hadn't Mr. Brown described her eyes if he wanted to recall her? They were like no other eyes in all the world, the boy was sure of that. But he couldn't describe them, he said softly, reaching for the overturned footstool and reinstating it under the spell of the gentler feeling. He did well not to try. Possibilities in her voice. I should think there were. She sings like an angel. And he went back over the walk they had taken together, and the talk they had enjoyed, while the others told stories and laughed. Her voice was sweet in conversation, as well as in song. He knew just the words she had said to him. I did not know that there were any men in college like you, Mr. Browning. How much he had liked to hear her say it. Mr. Browning. He was not used to it. The girls he knew as often called him Ken as any other name. Some of them even said Brownie, his pet nickname among the boys. He couldn't conceive of that sweet voice saying it. Her tone had been vibrant with admiration and respect. There was a sense in which he had understood her, but he had affected not to, just to enjoy her explanation. "'Like me,' he had exclaimed. "'Am I so different from other people?' "'Yes, indeed,' she had said with emphasis. "'Ever so different.' And then he had felt humiliated, as a hypocrite should, and tried to explain. "'You are awfully mistaken in me, Miss Roberts. I am not a bit better than the other fellows, and I am not so good by a million times as some of them.' But he had neither enlightened nor disturbed her. "'Oh, of course not,' she said with a pleased little laugh. "'You don't think yourself good. I know just how Christian people feel. You're kind of Christian, at least, but all the same they—well, I know what I mean.' The sentence had closed with another of those exquisite little laughs that some way sent him back to a lovely nook in the sheltered gardens of his home, and a tiny waterfall that tinkled down over the mossy stones making music to his ear. How well she fitted in to the choiceness of his thought about that home shelter. But he was miserable. She must be made to understand. 
He opened his mouth to explain, to tell everything if need be, in order not to deceive this lovely girl. He got out the words, "'But I am not,' he meant to say, "'but I am not a Christian at all. I am as far removed from one as possible. I have even somehow got myself into a scrape where I am posing as a hypocrite.' And there had come an interruption, a peremptory call for both of them to sing in a quartet, and they had been suddenly surrounded by chatterers, and there had not been a moment, either then or afterwards, for explanation and now he could not think of the beautiful girl without a flush of shame dying his face. End of chapter 15